Are kids different today? Biologically, no. Behaviorally, yes. As parents, we're raising children in a new digital environment. That means we need to understand the myriad ways this new environment influences them. The fact is, the use of interactive technology does affect their behavior and development. That's science, not speculation. Thus, we need to be conscious of how our kids are changed by screens. Once we understand that, we can make better, more informed decisions to minimize the negative effects of technology on our children and optimize the positive outcomes. That's today's episode. Hi, I'm Mark Roman, a tech policy expert and former White House advisor on privacy. I'm David Reitman, an adolescent medicine doctor who works with teens. We're also married to each other and raising a teenage son of our own. You're listening to Their Own Devices, a parenting podcast with practical advice for the 21st century. Last week, David and I did a presentation for a local PTA at a middle school. The questions those parents asked were the same as all the things most parents are wondering, which really is, Are our kids today different from prior generations? Are our children being negatively influenced or impacted by the use of interactive technology and digital media? How much screen time is too much? How should they be using their screens? And when it comes down to it, I think what every parent is wondering is, based on science, does all of this technology and interactive media use impact our kids' brains? Yeah, Mark, I get the same kind of questions all the time uh, from patients, and the parents want to know, what is the impact here? So is my kid going to get ADHD from playing too many video games? How does it affect their ability to socialize with their friends? Cognition? Are there problems with sleep? All these kind of things come up at least five times a day when I have a clinic. You know, I, I mean, I can see why the parents and your patients are asking because you know, even when I do research and try and prepare for one of our podcasts, it is very difficult to distinguish fact from fiction and to identify what resources are worthwhile and what are garbage. When it comes to finding experts in this field, there really are only a handful of true experts in the field of teenagers and digital media. And we are lucky to have one of those experts with us today, Dr. Michael Rich. 20 years ago, Dr. Rich taught me adolescent medicine when I rotated through his adolescent medicine clinic at Boston Children's Hospital. He's actually a really impressive physician. He is a former filmmaker who changed careers to become a pediatrician and an adolescent medicine specialist. At Boston Children's Hospital, he is a founder and director of the Center of Media and Child Health. He's also a pediatrician, researcher, and a father, as well as a media aficionado. From my perspective, the most important thing is that Michael has a sense of humor, and thank God, because our discussion could get a little heated today. Before we dive into your expertise on all these topics, I just wanted to hear a little bit about your family, and I understand that you have four kids, and you're not only an expert on a lot of these issues, But like David and I, you're living them. Absolutely. Every day. 
what's interesting is I have four kids in two cohorts of two, two before the internet and two now who are in adolescence. And it's very interesting, both how our understanding of screens in kids' lives have changed from the TV only era to the internet and interactive era, but also um, how dramatically kids have changed. I often talk to my staff at the Center on Media and Child Health. I say, we're following three moving targets here. The developing infant to child to adolescent to adult, a rapidly evolving digital environment in which that development is occurring and which is stimulating that development. And thirdly, the transformation in all of our behavior because we have smartphones in our pockets and how differently we behave with each other when we have ultimate connectivity. I want to pause because you said something that I'm curious about. You said it's amazing how different kids are. So are you suggesting that kids are actually different now than they were a decade, two or three ago? Biologically, no. Behaviorally, yes. And I think that's an environmental effect. I think that we have to stop thinking about smartphones or the internet or television as vectors of either education or harm or both and start thinking about them as the air these kids are breathing. This is the environment in which they're growing up. And as we learn more and more about neurodevelopment, about the brain development of a human, we realize how important those environmental stimuli and challenges are to building resilient, imaginative, creative brains. So there is taking place, particularly in the media, a very high-profile conversation about this suggesting that every generation is different than the prior generation. My parents complained about me watching MTV and that there's nothing different today and parents should relax. And so is there something different because of the technology? Yes and no. Biologically, kids are the same. But what's different is the environment in which they grew up. And if you look at this historically... There have been three major changes in the environment that children have grown up. The first being the Industrial Revolution. And the second is the end of World War II, when all the GIs came back and took those jobs on the farms and the mom-and-pop shops that kids were taking up in, in their absence. And that was the invention, really, of high school as a culture. This is when rock and roll came in. This is when, you know, like Greece is placed and, and where the teenager became what we think of as a teenager now. I think that the saturation in our world of interactive screen devices is a third cusp in that kind of historical change because of the way we have changed in our behaviors, where the devices have been the conduit through which we connect with each other to the exclusion of face-to-face -face connection in some cases. So I'm going to frame it in this way. Is there a problem? There's always a problem, right? I mean, those who are panicking about, oh my God, these kids are different, they're going to hell in a handbasket, the panic doesn't do us any good. What we need to do is take a step back and say, what is the same, as in the natural developmental progression of the human brain and body, but what is different, which is where that is occurring and so, what is stimulating it? That was scientific and diplomatic, but it didn't answer my question, which okay. is that you didn't say that their concerns are wrong. And they're not wrong, but their concerns are not different in severity or scope or gravity than parents' concerns about the pill. 
for example, when the pill came out and the sexual revolution or parents' concerns about any kind of social change that is affecting their children. What is different is the things that they are worried about. Where it goes off the rails a little bit is the panic. You know, there's clickbait out there saying, you know, your kid's smartphone is going to make her suicidal, right? And there are a lot of very narrow, even research studies that would imply that. I guess where I'm struggling with this a little bit and hearing you say this is that you've got people who are intentionally paid to actually make kids make certain decisions. Can we still say this is just a variation on evolution? Control by someone else is not new. The whole advertising industry is about controlling Mm -hmm. your mind to vote for someone or to buy toothpaste or whatever it is. So we have a long history of convincing people of something. Mm -hmm. You know, what's different is the means by which it's done. But with teenagers, or at least adolescents, as I understand it from hearing David speak, is that they are more easily influenced or can be more easily influenced than adults. It's an impressionable time. Doesn't that open kids up to problems of a different magnitude? Yes, it does, in the sense that the interactive media environment we have right now is actually very fertile ground for some of the key developmental tasks of adolescents. They are trying to find their identity. And one of the great things about the internet right now is that kids who historically felt marginalized, if they were gay or if they they were disabled, they had various other things, they became pariahs and they didn't have a community. They now have a community. Building identity is so important to that and also with that new identity to make connections with others. And so if we use it to be authentic, to be our true selves, not to market ourselves, which is what we're basically doing now, which is showing all the cool things I have or (laughs) the great vacation I went on or how hot my boyfriend is, rather than being the kind of authentic, vulnerable, real person that we are with our true friends, then we can really make this a truly global community. I just want to put out there that from my perspective, like saying that is sort of what I would call the naive, overly optimistic, pre-Arab Spring Facebook vision that they were going to democratize the world. And in fact, the great irony in some respects of the internet is it is actually now creating even worse silos. I don't want to go off topic, but the fake information and... I will totally cop to being an optimist. I'm a pediatrician. I see hope everywhere. This right? is why you need a pediatrician and a lawyer on every show. Right. <laughs> you do have a pediatrician and a lawyer on every show, Mark. Hello, this is their own devices. But, you know, and I, and I think that's why we do need each other, because we all have strengths, we all have limitations, but I think we do need to have hope in the human condition, otherwise we'll all be suicidal. I think that we shouldn't be blind to the fact that we can be manipulated, that we can be fed fake news, and it, it has led to a lot of divisiveness and fragmentation of our society. And this is one of the ironies and the things that I struggle with a lot, which is with near-infinite connectivity, we have undermined our connectedness yes. with each other. So I want to speak to this a little bit. I hear what you're saying about being authentic and how that can bring people together. Now, the other thing that we have had numerous discussions about is one's public internet presence versus their Finsta presence, and how there is such a divergence there. 
How do we get there to, to bridge those two so that the world's a better place? <laughs> well, you can take the negative route and say, you know what? It's really hard to maintain a good lie. So if, if we have our public-facing persona and it's all this beauty and perfection and our Finsta presence is our, our real stuff, it creates a lot of anxiety and a lot of pressure to keep up totally. that, that farce, right? Yep. And so you can sort of say, do you really want to commit yourself to that path where you have to figure out who you are to this particular audience or this particular person? Or do you want to accept the fact that you are good as you are, warts and all, and be yourself and have the guts to go out there? Now, I honestly think that social media can be an important transition space for adolescents as they grow up when they are sort of figuring out how do I express romantic interest in someone? How do I, how do I communicate okay, this? So and it feels like a safer space mm-hmm. in order to take those risks, but it's a space they need to move through, not one they get stuck in. And that, and when they get stuck in that is the problem. Well, you're going to hate me by the end but, of this, yeah, but let me... Indeed, I already I, hate you. Don't worry about it. What I'm going to call my reality, which is that... Oh, God, you, here we go. It is not a safe space to explore yourself if you're doing it in a way that is public because you make a mistake. It is public. It is permanent. It is then looked at by your colleges and sports teams. Absolutely. And it impacts your reputation and career. And right. so I do not want my son right. trying to be his authentic self in a public way on social media. Right. And in, so in some ways, as much as parents are, were uncomfortable with the Finsta concept, at least the kids had the common sense to not put out the nude photos and talk about drugs on their public facing profile. Absolutely. No, I, I'm not saying that it is a safe space. I said it feels like a safe space. Okay. It feels like an anonymous space. It feels like a space where they that can't can be touched. That make it more dangerous. Of course it makes it more dangerous. Of course it does. In fact, what I recommend to my kids and to my patients is the grandma rule. Don't put anything online that you don't want grandma to see because she can. But that right? contradicts exactly what you just said, which is we want you to be authentic and have real communications, isn't it? Is it? No teenager who what, restricts what, what, themselves to what they would say to their grandmother. I'm not, say, I'm not <laughs> saying open book authenticity. I'm talking about open heart authenticity. What I'm talking about is being authentic in the sense of when you're lonely, share that you're lonely. When you're horny, don't share that you're horny, right? There's right. a difference there. And so I'm talking about seeking the kind of deep and protective human connectedness that we used to have when we were in the village. We knew the neighbors, we knew the family members, we knew people, and we didn't like all of them, and we fought with some of them, but at least we knew our community. Uh, So many points, but... Yeah, so many points. What you were suggesting adolescents do and how they engage online, uh, again, I'm not the doc here, but seems to fly in the face of what I've learned about adolescents, which is that... You're asking a lot of someone who is not fully developmentally there, right, or mature, Mm -hmm. that, see, David, I listen to you, by the way. Are you like this? Um, Just just use the word frontal lobe, Mark. Right. So so the frontal lobe's not fully developed. (laughs) By definition, teens are programmed to take risks. By definition, they're going to make mistakes, and you want them to. That's how you grow up. They don't have great judgment, and they're not thinking about long-term consequences. And so... With all of that in mind, suggesting that social media is the place where they go to appropriately express themselves strikes me as in somewhat conflict with who you are as a teen. Guess what? 
world is full of ambivalence. World is full of ambiguities and they are going to make mistakes online and you know, they're going to make mistakes that can hurt them. All I'm actually saying is this is a new environment that they and we need to understand to the best of all of our ability and do the best we can in it. I'm not trying to be Pollyanna-ish about this. I'm saying that the potential is there used correctly for us to really connect in deep and meaningful ways with each other. The problem is right now we aren't. And in part, it's because we go to social media, we go to the internet, we go to our smartphones as the latest bright, shiny thing, right? How cool is this? Look what I can do. Rather than saying, what are the implications of what I do? And let's face facts. Adolescence is all about learning the implications of what you do virtually every step along the way. You know, life is a series of risk-benefit analyses that adolescents just don't do, you know, until they learn the hard way, you know, the blessing of the skin knee, you know. So I'm not saying this with some belief that every kid's going to be perfect. What I'm saying is that we need to help them open their eyes as much as possible. And instead of restricting their media use, sort of this many hours or or this these sites and not those sites, we need to engage with them in their media use. We need to parent them in the digital space the same way we parent them in the physical world. Which then goes to, I think, what started this podcast, which is that to do that, a parent, mom and dad has to understand the tech. Mom and dad have to be on the platforms and know how they work and what our kids are doing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, parents cannot afford to say, I don't understand it, I'm not going there. But at least, you know, he's not shooting drugs or, you know, getting in fights or in trouble having sex. They have to understand also that online and offline mean nothing to kids. They live seamlessly between these two spaces. And parents sort of compartmentalize them, which is very artificial to a kid. To them, you know, Instagram is as real as the playground at school. So I think that we need to help parents understand that they have to understand these spaces. The way they do it is sit down next to their kid and use it with them. That instead of wagging their finger and saying, I hate Call of Duty, turn that off. Sit down next to them, pick up the controller and play the game with them. They will beat your pants off. But Call of Duty is not appropriate for every age kid. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I'll tell you something. I don't use the word appropriate because appropriate is a values-based word. And I think that one of the problems with driving this from a values position is that you can take any 10 people, they will have 10 different value sets. They will argue as long as you let them argue and they will walk out with the same value sets. However, if you can put information in front of them, verifiable facts, much the way we deal with nutrition and say, here's how your young person is changed by the media he or she uses and how he uses them. Here are the times at which they are ready to handle this. We need to approach smartphones, the internet, social media as power tools. And what I mean by that is think about the way we teach kids to drive cars. First of all, we don't toss the keys at them at age two because they're making noise while waiting for dinner at a restaurant, right? We don't say, hey, you're here, have at it. We do the same thing with, with smartphones, though. And, you know, they can go anywhere so let's, on a smartphone. So let's go to the smartphone. How do you answer the question of what's the right age to give a kid his smartphone? Uh, you know, this is the whole problem with 
age-based things. Let's go to the movie rating system, you know, PG-13, as if somehow at the 13th birthday, these kids are magically transformed into able to handle this stuff. These are prescriptive rather than descriptive ratings. They want a simple answer to a complex question. But the reality is that parents know their child better than anybody on the face of the earth. They are in the best position to determine when the child needs and can use effectively and safely that power tool. But if that's true, then what about the notion that I think we agree that a lot of parents are not making the right decision about when they give the kid the smartphone and how they present it to them because it is happy 10th birthday. Yep. They should not be treated as either rewards or punishment. In other words, you don't give a kid a smartphone either because they've turned 10 or because they got straight A's, which is another thing, you know, or it's taken away when their straight A slips, you so know. So this podcast sucks because I feel like you're giving unfailing parenting based on. Oh, we are all failing parenting. <laughs> no, we, we are. But here's the thing. Parenting is more of an art than a science. It can be informed and supported by science, but we will never do it perfectly. I guess, you know, I get the questions all the time from parents like, I want to take this away from my kid because he he's not ready for it. But if I take it away from him, he is going to not be able to make play dates with his friends or connect. BS. Okay. Okay. I mean, back in it. the day, we made play dates with something called a telephone, right? I really have a problem with this concept that somehow... In order to fit in, a child has to have a smartphone. We have to treat these as tools, not toys. I agree, but I think where David was going or where I want to go <laughs> is that now my son has a smartphone, a PS4, a laptop. We have parental control, so access to content that I have based on my values, which are right. Right. <laughs> um, right. Yes. deemed appropriate for him. But I do, as a parent, have to set limits on how much time and what content and how it's used. I felt like you were saying no. Oh, no, that is your role as a parent. But you should be aware of what he's doing and engage with him around it. I don't like the concept of parental control. To an adolescent, parental control means something to hack, something to subvert. They are <laughs> biologically <laughs> programmed to rebel, right? to seek autonomy, to be different. However, it's parental engagement. You know, which is, let's play this game together. I, I don't understand Grand Theft Auto or Call of Duty or whatever it is. You know, and, and you can fill in the blanks. It, you know, every house is different. Oh, I'm calling you out on this one. <laughs> okay. This is, no. What about porn? Like, I have controls on my son's computer because I do not want his browser to be able to access adult content. Right. So, so he just goes over to his friend's house and does it. Right. You know, I mean, he, here's the reality. I think what's. No, so you're, you're saying I should. That's not an effective. Uh, no, I'm, I'm saying it's, an, it's not fully effective. Absolutely. Okay. okay. But here's what you are doing with that, which is this important, is which is that you are modeling your expectations. I think that when you talk about controls and you take a, a police approach to it, to I'm going to clamp down on this, I'm going to block this and this, that and the other. First of all, you know as well as I do that there's no tech that's going to block your kid from any of these Absolutely. things. Absolutely. Right? Yep. The most important software for protecting your child is between his ears. And what you're doing is parenting them just as you teach them how to be polite, how to be kind, how to be socially adept. You're also doing that in the digital space as well. What I think we need to do is be conscious of 
how our children and young people at large are changed by the screens they use and how they so use can them. You tell, so our audience is parents. The question parents were all asking, right? Violent video games. My son's 13. He wants them all. There are all kinds of articles out there. Pick a magazine. What is the science? Like, what are the impacts on my son from that, for example? This is actually speaking to one of the core projects we've done at the Center on Media and Child Health from the very beginning, which is to pull together the good, rigorous science from a lot of different disciplines, everything from pediatrics to criminal justice to gender studies, and understand how we are affected and what uh, the approximately a thousand studies that we have now that are really good science have shown one or more of three outcomes very consistently. The first is those who are using violent media are more inclined to be fearful and anxious. This particularly affects very young children. But I've had a 14-year-old boy who was brought in to me because his, he stopped walking the dog at night. And when we really talked about it, it's because he was playing Call of Duty and he could not walk past a bush without thinking someone's going to jump out and shoot him. So it changed his frame of reference on the world. And this is particularly so with very young children. And we're seeing kids who are having sleep disturbances, nightmares, all kinds of issues, even what looks for all the world like post-traumatic stress disorder, even because they were sitting next to the 14-year-old that was playing the violent video game when they were two. So that's the first thing. The second thing that happens actually to all of us of any age is we get desensitized because we see it all the time. So we care less about harm to others. And the third response, and this is actually the least prevalent response, some kids, and we don't know who they are in advance, have an increase in their aggressive thoughts and behaviors. And so they are more likely to throw a punch earlier in a conflict or they are more likely to be mean online or, you know, slander or say something like that. Now, whenever there is a tragic school shooting of some kind, the press all comes out to us and says, see, it's the video games. This caused this. And the reality is there are millions of kids playing violent video games. And yet school shootings are a relatively well, rare event. So... What we have to look at is not so much that there are school shootings happening or street violence happening, but let's look at the microaggressions that occur every day in every community, in every school, the bullying that occurs. One thing we've learned from the bullying research is you need three components for bullying to occur. You need a bully. That matches up with increased prevalence of aggressive thoughts and behaviors. You need a victim, increased fear and anxiety, and you need bystanders desensitization. Look at how the changes we have measured in people from exposure to violent media map onto the bullying dynamic. You said in your last statement, it's exposure to violent media. Is there something different about a violent video game than sitting and watching a movie that has violence? Yes. And I'll tell you why that is. It's the interactivity. It is not passive reception of a story, an environment, a situation. It is placing you as the protagonist in a situation where it lays out certain conditions, it rewards you for certain behaviors, and it punishes you for other behaviors. If it's a violent video game, it's rewarding you for shooting more effectively, and it's punishing you for allowing yourself to get shot. Let's keep it that simple. Okay, so one could argue that this is probably the best educational technology we've developed to date, which is 
war game scenarios, putting you in a situation, having you do things. The people who brought the World Trade Towers to the ground trained on a flight simulator, which is essentially a video game, right? It is how, when this occurs, how do you respond? I think that we have to be really conscious of the fact that when kids are playing FIFA soccer, they are going to learn to have better soccer strategies. It's not going to help their kick because they're not actually doing it. But when they are playing a first-person shooter, they're going to get better at those things as well. And not only are they rewarded for the desired behavior, but they're doing it over and over and over again in behavioral scripts so that what's happening is that they are now reflexively responding by doing whatever it is, whether it's shooting a goal on soccer or shooting a person. And so I think that we have to be aware of the fact that our children are being changed by what they do and then decide whether we want them changed in that way. So something else on my mind, which comes back to something you said earlier, let's say you you break the rules or you don't do well in school or something else happens. And so consequences frequently today for parents is taking away the PS4 or the phone or YouTube because that's what kids care about. Is that actually producing a worse outcome? It is fair and just for the limitation or removal of these devices when the devices themselves are used wrong. It is not a good idea to use it as a punishment or a reward for other types of behavior because it makes it a toy or it makes it candy, not a tool. And I think that if there's a single guiding fundamental element to how to teach your child to be an effective user of media, it is that they learn to use it the right way. Just as we teach them to drive a car, not by saying, don't hit that tree. You know, we say you drive the car and in the process, don't hit the tree. Right. And so we have to treat these very powerful devices and the things they can do as tools, not as toys or treats and as tools that we introduce to the child when he or she is able to handle it in responsible ways and they need it. In other words, what are they going to be doing with that smartphone when they have it? Parents ask me that question all the time. And I said, okay, so you sit down with your child when they ask you for a smartphone and say, why do you want it? And if the answer is because everyone else has one, no. And here's what you're doing here. You're not only saying you're not ready for this device. You're also saying for them, learn to say no to stuff that everybody else is doing unless you want to do it, unless you think it's the right and safe and responsible thing to do because they're going to be handed a joint. They're going to be handed a bottle of liquor. They're going to be asked to have sex and they're going to feel forced into it because everyone else has it. So you can actually model for them the leadership qualities it takes to say no. I am seeing lots and lots of parents who gave their kids smartphones switching to flip phones. Flip phones are coming back, right? Because, Welcome because, to our house. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, if you think about it, what 13-year-old needs to be able to roam the internet at will? You know, they, well, they're going to say, well, I need it because, you know, I'm going to stay late for football practice or drama rehearsal and I need you to pick me up and, you know, I need whatever. All of this stuff can be done by voice, right? Or, or by text. And so I think that a lot of parents are sort of doing the retro 
reaction and going back to simpler, easier technology because that's something that their child can handle more reasonably, right? And not subject themselves and their immature prefrontal cortex with very little executive function to the manipulations that you're absolutely right are built into every product there. They're built into the games, they're built into social media, and what's built in is a system of variable rewards. It's what Vegas lives on. Yep. Exactly. Right? Absolutely. Right. And it gives you just enough success to keep doing it and just enough frustration to keep you going back and say, I, I can get it this next time. I can get it this next time. Whether it's likes on social media or whether it's, you know, a win in Fortnite. So my observation then is that parents in society are really blowing this. Parents in society have blown it since we crawled out of the caves. We are. I thought you were an optimist. I am an optimist. <laughs> That's my line. No, but, but it's okay. It's okay. It's okay to be human. We're doing this together, and we need each other to do this together. And we need to step up, and we should be able to be called when we fall down. You know, hey, you said you'd be home in time for dinner, and you stayed late at work. You know, and it is better for us to acknowledge our failings and try to do better than it is to sort of say, no, you know, different rules for you than for me. We're terrible role models. Right. With technology in particular. Right. And we need to be conscious of that. I actually recommend to all of my patients, not just the ones who have problematic interactive media use, the so-called internet addiction, I suggest that they try to take a digital Sabbath, right? One day a week where everything's off. And invariably their response was exactly what you gave me, which is the WTF look, right? It's like, you've got to be uh, kidding. I'll, I'll raise my hand so for the audience, he's looking at Mark. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. We are so wedded to these devices that we think we can't live without them. Here's the interesting thing that happens. The people who are most likely to try it are people who are either in the tech industry or in the entertainment industry because they know what goes in the back end. They know the manipulation that occurs. They know what is. And they come back and they tell me the first day we did it, it was awful. The second day we did it, it was liberating. Because, you know, I mean, it's like they had to withdraw from the hyperstimulation. But if you think about it, when your smartphone buzzes and you're talking to your child, what's your response? You look at the smartphone. You could be in the midst of the talk with your 13-year-old. You could, you could be in the midst of something seemingly innocuous like how was your day? But we have prioritized these devices over our children and over our face-to-face connections. And actually research that we are doing right now is looking at the relationship between anxiety, depression, and the types of interaction. We're using something called ecological momentary assessment, which pings in on people at random intervals in their days and asks them where they are affectively, happy, sad, nervous, etc., and what they're doing. And what we have found is that sort of the affect is interestingly baseline with kids who are texting. Kids who are on social media are more depressed and more anxious when they are using and after they use it. Kids, when they do talk and video conversations like FaceTime, actually have higher positive affect, and the highest positive affect is face-to-face communication. So we have gotten into a pattern of doing the least intimate thing. It's way easier to text somebody than it is to call them up. It feels safer, right? feels quicker. Right. But we 
so we are backing off from that. So one of the things that I actually recommend to kids is when they think of reaching out to a friend to upgrade by one. If they're thinking of texting, pick up the phone and call them. If you're thinking of calling, do a video chat or better yet, get face to face. And what we do is we avoid those because of the fear of intimacy, the fear of overcoming rejection or whatever it is we might get, right? But as I've told more than one of my patients, you can't make out with Facebook, right? I like that. <laughs> so what you're saying, though, is what you just said is actually, it is alarming. It is alarming that we are relying so much on social media, which is texting and snapping. That right. is causing a problem. Sure. But it's not a problem we can't fix. I mean, think of all the problems we have felt overwhelmed by and have addressed. You know, HIV, right? There was a, a death sentence and we figured out how to make it a chronic condition. So I think that we just need to be clear-eyed. We need to look at the problem. We need to understand what it is, not make excuses for it, not make, not be apologists for it. This is not about stopping doing it or restricting doing it so much as it's like a martial art. Let's take all that energy and engagement and just redirect the momentum toward more positive things, toward making us closer to each other, more supportive of each other, and more deeply connected in ways that protect us all. I think that is an amazing note to wrap on. Uplifting and optimistic. And why should I ruin that? That was a really valuable conversation. And I think personally, I learned a lot. Let me share a few takeaways. I guess the first takeaway is that pediatricians are optimists and lawyers are cynics. But putting that aside, I think what we heard and probably the key takeaway from this episode is that the science demonstrates conclusively that how our children use technology and interactive media will, in fact, influence their behavior and their development. I think that is an important takeaway. And it's going to be up to us as parents to help minimize the potential downsides and optimize all the beneficial outcomes from technology. It is also clear that we need to pay very close attention to how our children are using screens. Because as Michael emphasized, how they use the screens will in fact change their behavior. Does that sound right, David? Yeah, and I think that one of the things that he mentioned that really resonated with me is that it's time to stop thinking about things in terms of the IRL, the in-real-life world, and the digital world. These really are just one world. Also, the smartphone, it isn't a toy, and it shouldn't be presented that way. It is a tool that has a lot of good uses, but these uses need to be employed responsibly. And finally, we heard that violent video games do have some potential impact uh, on our kids. And while we don't need to panic about this, we need to be aware of it and make some decisions about what our kids are playing accordingly. I really thought that Michael's discussion about violent video games was incredible because there is so much debate about that and so much lack of clarity. And he just nailed it and was pretty clear that violent video games and games in particular can impact our kids, can cause some anxiety, can desensitize us to violence, and in rare cases can make us more aggressive. And so 
That discussion, I have to agree, was pretty incredible. Uh, and then finally, we heard about communications and his thought that we need to encourage more face-to-face communications and less reliance on social media. I kind of liked the way he framed it when he said that with near-infinite connectivity, we have undermined our connectedness with each other. That's um, a pretty bold statement coming from yep. Michael Rich. I think that the thing that I really do like about Michael is that he is optimistic. You know, we we can be optimistic about the future. There are lots of problems that are involved with parenting in this age of digital and social media, but they are solvable. And these are not that different from the kind of problems that have been around when parenting adolescents for generations. Agreed. He's an optimist. But what I also liked is he is blunt. And so he just said it the way it is. Parenting is hard. Get over it. Parenting is an art, not a science. We are all doing it wrong. We've been doing it wrong for centuries. And uh, notwithstanding that, we survived. And chances are our kids will do just fine. I do want to close by sharing some resources with our audience because the Center on Media and Child Health at Boston Children's Hospital has an amazing website. In fact, It's one of the resources that we go to routinely. That website is cmch.tv. Very cute, Michael. I like the .tv there. That's CMCH for Center on Media and Child Health. And there are uh, not just the FAQs, but all kinds of resources on nearly every topic we have explored on this podcast. They are accessible and they are great. So I encourage you to go to that website. And in the future, you can even check out Michael's new podcast. But keep listening to Their Own Devices. And on that note, thanks for listening to Their Own Devices. This show is a conversation and we'd love to hear from you. What topics are in your mind about kids and technology? Email us at hello at theirowndevicespodcast.com. And I want to emphasize, we really do read the email and it really does impact the show and the topics we cover. So let us know. Their Own Devices is hosted and produced by Mark Roman and David Reitman. The podcast is recorded at Clean Cut Studios in Washington, D.C. And this episode was edited by Ryan Dan. Be sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you're listening to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. It will help other parents find the show and get the info they need. We'll see you next time. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.